Uh, today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. If you are using the dark uh, English Bibles in the pews, it is found on page 875. That's 875. Again, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am shamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray again. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for your word as it has now been read. We pray for your spirit's help that he may give us true understanding and that he may keep our hearts soft and ready to receive whatever word you have for us this morning. Whether it be a word of encouragement or conviction, Lord, we pray that we may respond with faith and obedience. We pray this for your glory, for our good, all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, for most of you, you're probably aware that we are going through a summer series in the parables of Jesus in the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke. This morning's parable, well, when I read it this week, it really reminded me of the marshmallow tests that parents sometimes do with their toddlers. Now, if, if you're a parent, you probably know what I'm talking about. If, if you don't, this is basically where parents offer their kids one marshmallow and they tell them, Okay, you can eat this marshmallow right now, but if you do that, that's all you're going to get. But if you wait until, you know, mommy and daddy come back and, you know, we'll, you know, go off and wait for a few minutes, then when we come back, if you haven't eaten your marshmallow, you get two. And that's when the parents will leave the room, be gone for maybe five, ten minutes, waiting to see if their toddler is forward-thinking if he could delay immediate gratification, if, if he's only going to focus on, 
on just what's in front of him, on the now, or is he going to think about the future? Is he going to think about future rewards and plan accordingly? How far into the future does your kid think? That's basically what the marshmallow test is trying to reveal. Basically, if your kid is smart or not, or as Jesus puts it, if he's shrewd. Now, I know marshmallows may not be your thing, but what if I were to offer you today $10,000 for you to have to spend on whatever you wish? That would be a great offer. But what if I promised that if you decline the money today and just wait a year, I would return and I would give you $10,000. And then another $10,000 every year in perpetuity. The smart move in this case, the shrewd move, would be to turn down the thousand now and to plan for the future. Only a fool would choose the thousand today. You would be like that kid who couldn't wait five minutes for a second marshmallow. Well, friends, this morning's passage contains an important spiritual lesson that is very similar to what's taught in a simple marshmallow test. That is, you can't just focus on the present. You have to plan for the future. Now, I know some Christians are going to wonder if it's unspiritual to be saving up for the future, to always be looking for a high return on investment, but do you notice that's not the problem in this parable. The problem, according to this parable, is that we are too short-sighted. The the future that we're focusing on is too short. We're planning for when our kids go to college. We're planning for retirement, for old age, when we should be planning for eternity. That's the point here. Now, I I know we all know that when it comes to financial investments, there are no guarantees, right? The future is never guaranteed. Nothing is inevitable. But, friends, when it comes to life itself, there are inevitables. It's inevitable that this life, as you know it, will come to an end. You will be removed from this momentary life, and you will enter into a forever future that stretches into eternity. That's inevitable. And so in this morning's parable, Jesus confronts us with these inevitables, and he calls his disciples to be smart, to be shrewd, to choose an investment strategy that factors in a forever future into the equation. Live your life with the mindset, with the true belief that you are going to live forever. And prepare right now for that forever future, making sure that it will be a future free of suffering and shame and full of true riches and joy. That's basically what the, 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 the shrewd servant, or you can call him the dishonest manager, was trying to do in this parable. Now, I I realize the confusion with this parable lies in the fact that it seems like Jesus is condoning some pretty bad behavior. It seems like he's commending dishonest business business practices and then telling his disciples to go and do likewise. So we're definitely going to have to address the interpretive difficulties in this text, but I think the main point is still pretty straightforward. If even non-Christians have the foresight to prepare for a financial future free of suffering and shame, 
then how much more should Christians have the foresight to prepare for an eternal future free of everlasting suffering and shame? That's Jesus' point. So let's, let's dig a little deeper into this text by considering three applications that we can derive from this passage. And so you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, there's an outline. These are our three applications. First, to plan your future shrewdly to prepare for the inevitable. Second, to spend your money wisely to make for yourself eternal friends. And third, to steward this life faithfully to receive greater treasures in the next. So the first application is to plan your future shrewdly to prepare for your inevitable dismissal. Jesus begins uh, chapter 16 with this parable about a manager, or you could translate it as a steward. Uh, Stewards, as you know, show up quite frequently in Jesus' parables because they're a wonderful way to illustrate our responsibility and our relationship to God. God is like the master of a typical Greco-Roman household, and we are like stewards. A steward is just one of the household servants, but has been chosen chosen to be given a a whole host of resources and responsibilities to manage the household well on behalf of the master. So a steward could spend money, use resources, invest capital, capital, it's all at the steward's disposal, but of course it's all on behalf of the master. A steward is in charge of a lot, but he owns none of it. It's all for the master. A steward stewards on behalf of his master. So that means that the actions of a steward are going to reflect well or poorly on the master and his household. And in our parable, the steward's stewardship is reflecting poorly on the master. We see in verse 1, it says the steward was called to account by his master for wasting his possessions. He was mismanaging funds. He was misallocating resources, mistreating his fellow servants, and so he's getting fired. Verse 2, it says, turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now, he's given some time to get his affairs in order, and so in this uh, interim time, he's still in charge of the books, and so he devises for himself a plan. Look at verse 3. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now what's he doing here? He's planning for the future. This steward is forward thinking. He, is, he realizes that his dismissal from his post is inevitable. And if he doesn't act now, then his future is going to be filled with pain and hard labor. And so he prepares now for his inevitable dismissal. He is securing for himself a financial future that is free of suffering and shame. He does this by lowering the debt of his master's debtors. Now, I know there are a different, uh, number of different opinions as to what he's exactly trying to accomplish. Some suggest that he's just taking out 
the exorbitant commission that he would have normally tacked on to these transactions for himself. Uh, some say, well, he was just canceling the accrued interest or he's just adjusting the debt uh, based on a more fair market rate, suggesting that the master was overcharging people. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's really debatable exactly what he was trying to accomplish. But what we see him doing here in verse 6 is to one debtor, he lowers the debt from a hundred measures of olive oil, that's about 800 gallons, to half the amount. And then he goes to another debtor and he takes a hundred measures of wheat, that's about a thousand bushels of wheat, and he lowers it by 20%. So do you see what he's trying to do here? These are obviously very large debts, and he's giving some significant discounts. By lowering these debts, he's ingratiating himself with these debtors. He is trying to put them in his debt so that he can call on a favor once he is inevitably dismissed from his post. Now, of course, the interpretive difficulty arises in verse 8 when Jesus has the master commending the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, why is the master praising the manager who is clearly doing something dishonest? Now, that word dishonest could also be translated as unrighteous or unjust. When Jesus speaks of unrighteous wealth in the next verse, in verse 9, that's the same Greek word. So this steward is being dishonest or unrighteous. Why then is he being commended? Well, just look at verse 8. Look at verse 8, how Jesus was commending this dishonest manager, not for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness in the way he prepared for his inevitable future. Now, to be shrewd means to have keen judgment, to be to be sharp-minded, to be smart. The, the Greek word is commonly translated elsewhere in the New Testament as wise. And so when we looked a few weeks ago at the faithful and wise servant in Luke chapter 12, that's the same word. He's the faithful and shrewd servant. Now, what does shrewdness or wisdom look like in today's parable? Well, shrewdness amounts to future-oriented thinking and investing. This dishonest, unrighteous manager was shrewd enough to prepare for his inevitable dismissal from the household. He was wise enough to secure a future that would be free from suffering and shame, from manual labor and begging. And Jesus goes on to explain in verse 8, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What the Lord is doing is he's pointing out how non-Christians, sons of this world, are oftentimes shrewder and wiser than Christians, sons of light. If, if non-Christians are shrewd enough to do what it takes right now to protect and secure their future earthly prospects, then why do Christians neglect to protect and secure their future heavenly prospects? That's the question being raised. If Non-Christians have the foresight to prepare for a financial future free of suffering and shame, then how much more should Christians have the foresight to prepare for an eternal future 
free of everlasting suffering and shame. For this manager, his future was very unpredictable. There were a lot of things up in the air, but there was one thing for certain, and that is his removal. The, the one inevitable was his dismissal from the life and home that he so comfortably enjoyed. And so he accepted the inevitable, and he was shrewd enough to prepare for the future. Well, friends, in the same way, your future is unpredictable, but there is one thing for certain, and that's your removal. Your dismissal from this present life and home to an endless eternity, a forever future. And we spend so much time, money, energy preparing for future possibilities for where we might go to college or for what kind of job we might have or who we might marry or how big of a family we might have or when we might be able to retire. We don't know what might or might not happen in the future, but there is one thing certain. We will all be dismissed from this life. Either death arrives at our doorstep or Christ returns and comes knocking. Either way, we will be dismissed and all of our earthly goods will remain behind. John D. Rockefeller was arguably the wealthiest person who ever lived. But after he died, someone asked his accountant, how much money did John D. leave? And his reply was classic. He left all of it. Psalm 49, 17 says, when the rich man dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. So enjoy your treasures now, but just realize you can't take it with you. You will have to leave it all behind once you're dismissed. And so if that's the case, if that is the inevitable, then what is the smart move? What is the shrewd move? Friends, shrewdness would call for you to do what it takes now to invest your treasures in such a way now that you are prepared for your inevitable dismissal. The wise thing to do is to secure an eternal future that is free of suffering and shame and full of true riches and joy. Now, of course, the most fundamental issue is whether or not you are prepared now in such a way that your forever future will be filled with everlasting joy in the new creation when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. If you are not prepared then due to the sinful guilt that we all share, your inevitable fate will be to spend a bleak, dismal, hopeless eternity in eternal damnation. Only, only the fool is going to spend all of his time preparing for a secure retirement in a few decades, all while neglecting to secure his forever future. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So if you don't know 
what your forever future holds. If, if you don't feel prepared for your inevitable dismissal, well, friend, the good news of the gospel is that to be prepared, you don't have to know a lot of things and do a lot of things. You don't have to read the whole Bible first. You don't have to go and take seminary classes. You don't have to go and climb a mountain and prove yourself worthy. If you want to be prepared to spend a forever future with the God who made you, it only requires knowing one thing and doing one thing. You need to know that you are a sinner desperately in need of a salvation that only Jesus can provide through his death and resurrection. And the thing you need to do is to repent and believe in Jesus' gracious promise to save you. That's it. That's how you can be prepared for your inevitable dismissal. The shrewd steward is the one who accepts that death is inevitable and prepares now by receiving the gospel by grace through faith. That's the first application in this parable. The second is like it, but this second application is more specifically focused on how we invest the money that God gives us to steward on his behalf. This is the second point. Spend your money wisely to make for yourself eternal friends. This is how Jesus applies his parable in verse 9. Verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Well, that explains exactly what the steward was trying to do. He may have been dishonest and unrighteous, but at least he understood the limitations of money. Now, by calling it unrighteous wealth, Jesus wasn't suggesting that it was obtained dishonestly or illegally. Uh, By calling it unrighteous wealth, it's just like saying worldly wealth. He's just talking about money here. And the dishonest manager knew that money has limits. Money has an expiration date. Money is going to fail him. It's not a question of if, but when money fails. When money fails him, he hopes that he will have ingratiated himself with enough people that they are going to take him in and maybe they're going to make him the steward of their household. That's what he's hoping for. Now, of course, the question is, What's the takeaway for Jesus' disciples? I mean, you hear this parable, you see it illustrated, but what's the takeaway? What is he actually expecting us to do with our money? Or just to go and buy some friends? You know, bribe them to be our friends? To put people in our debt so that they're going to owe us a favor? Is, is that what Jesus is suggesting? No, no, of course not. Jesus just wants us to think about what's going to last forever. And it's not money. Money will fail. Moth and rust will destroy. Thieves will break in and steal. And even if you manage to keep it safe, death will inevitably come and rip it out of your hands. The scriptures identify three things that are going to last forever. Three things that will be there with you in a forever future. It's God, God's word, and people made in the image of God. Those are the three things. 
And so the shrewd thing to do, the shrewd move, would be to invest in those things, things that are going to remain in your forever future. And so the smartest thing, think about this, the shrewdest thing that you can do with your time and energy today is to channel them towards your relationship with God and your knowledge of Him. Your knowledge that is the knowledge of God revealed in His Word. Because if your forever future is going to be all about an enjoyment of perfect communion with God, then the shrewdest, smartest, most sensible thing that you can invest your time in is in your relationship with God in his word, preparing yourself for an even greater experience of that communion in the age to come. And the same could be said for your relationship with others. If you're going to share an eternity with the people of God, then investing in those relationships right now make complete sense. Investing in the lives of your fellow church members has eternal value. Just keep that in mind the next time you feel too tired to go to community group. Keep that in mind the next time you feel too busy to give up an evening or a lunch hour to spend time with another church member. I know you feel like that paper you have to write or that exam you have to study for or that deadline you have to meet or that boss that you have to please. I know you feel like that's the most important thing in your life right now, but in reality, those things are fleeting and they will soon pass away. It makes no sense to neglect eternal relationships for temporal ambitions. The shrewdest, smartest, most sensible investment is in people, especially in eternal friends who will be there to welcome you into glory. And if you're convinced that only those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, only those who believe in the gospel are going to be there in glory to welcome you, then the shrewdest, smartest, most sensible investment of your resources is to to direct them towards gospel work. Whether it's your own efforts to share the gospel or it's your financial investment to support the gospel work of others. I think that's what Jesus is saying in verse 9. He's saying how shrewd and sensible it is to invest your money in the gospel work of gospel-centered churches like ours. He's saying it's a wise, shrewd investment of your money to donate to the gospel work of missionaries and organizations that are dedicated to bringing the good news to the unchurched and the unreached peoples of the world. The fact is, The fact is, when you arrive in glory, you're not going to care about what your GPA was. You're not going to care about what your job title was. You're not going to care about what kind of house you lived in. You're not going to be thinking about all the clothes you used to wear. What you're going to care about when you enter into glory are all of the faces the faces of eternal friends who benefited from all the different ways that you spent your time and money in this life. Now, many of those faces are going to be familiar and dear to you. It will be a sweet reunion. But some of those faces are going to be unfamiliar. You're not going 
to recognize them, and yet they're welcoming you in, but it will be revealed to you at that moment that that person welcoming you in glory is there in glory partly through your financial investment in the good gospel work of other people. That's why I'm, I'm just really excited to, 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 to introduce next month we're going to be doing something as a church. We're going to be doing a campaign designed to raise funds to translate a book of the New Testament for a people group who don't have a Bible in their heart language. That's something we're going to do as a whole church. It's exciting. It's called an Adopt-A-Verse campaign. And we're going to challenge all of us to get at least the book of Colossians. I think we can do more than that. But at least the book of Colossians translated for a people group living right now in a large island nation in Southeast Asia. For security purposes, I'll just say that. You might be able to guess which big one I'm talking about. And they don't have, at least this people group, do not have a Bible in their own language. And we have an opportunity to be able to help them get a Bible the Word of God in their heart language. Just imagine what it's going to be like to enter into glory and to have a group of strangers, strangely dressed, speaking a strange language, come running up to you, grasping your hands, shaking it profusely, thanking you, thanking you for giving them the Word of God in their own heart language. Imagine them receiving you into eternal dwellings. That's what Jesus wants us to picture. That's the picture he's painting for us. So friends, what are you investing your money in? We're all investors. We are all investors. We're investing our money, our time, our energy, our resources into something. Are you making shrewd decisions? Are you investing in what's going to last for eternity? Are you willing to deny yourself the one marshmallow now and to focus on the future and to future rewards? That leads us to our third application. To steward this life faithfully to receive greater treasures in the next. To steward our life faithfully to receive greater treasures in the next. The Bible unashamedly talks about future rewards. It teaches that there is a second marshmallow of sorts waiting for us, waiting for the faithful when they enter into glory. We see that here in verse 20 to 21. I'm sorry, uh, verse 10, verse 10 to 12. Um, look there, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now that's a real basic principle and that's, uh, that you find in the Bible. And if you just think about it, it's just common sense here. How you handle little responsibilities now is going to reveal how you're going to handle bigger ones later. How you approach the little tasks of life right now is going to determine how you're going to approach the bigger ones in the life to come. This is common sense. 
This is why parents don't give their teenagers a brand new luxury vehicle as their first car. You give them the hand-me-down, right? I mean, one that still drives, one that's safe, but it still needs a lot of care and maintenance. Because if your teenager is neglectful and accident-prone and essentially unfaithful in taking care of a hand-me-down, then you, as a parent, would be foolish to go out and buy them a brand new luxury car. We have to be faithful first with a little, with what we have now. I think a lot of us, a lot of us complain about not having enough. There's always things that we want in life that God, for whatever reason, he hasn't provided yet, and we are dissatisfied. We're always thinking about what we don't have. I think we need to take verse 10 seriously. Why spend your time fretting over what you don't have? If you're so focused on what's not in your life, to the point that you begin to neglect the people and things that God has already put in your life, then what makes you think he's going to give you more? God wants to see how faithful you are with the responsibilities and relationships he has given you now. So focus on what is already in your life. Be faithful where you are and with what you have and trust God when he promises that he will entrust you with true riches in the future. Now, you're probably wondering, what are these true riches in verse 11 referring to? Because in other places, Jesus calls them treasures in heaven. Well, he never really spells out what these things are in detail, but at least we can say with certainty that these true riches, these heavenly treasures, are not referring to salvation itself. Uh, I think the Gospels are clear in their teaching that salvation can't be earned. It doesn't depend on your faithfulness. Uh, it doesn't depend on how well you've performed as a steward. Now, salvation as offered by Jesus, as secured by his death and resurrection, is freely given. It's a gift by grace through faith. We can also say here that these true riches, they don't refer to salvation, and as well, they don't refer to material wealth. No one gets his own mansion in heaven. There's actually only one mansion, and Jesus, he calls it his Father's house in John 14, and he says he has prepared a room for all of his disciples. He has prepared a room for every believer in that one house. So it's all God's house. We just get a room. We all get a room. And I know the Bible does, the New Testament does talk about receiving a crown of righteousness or in some places a crown of life. So yes, we're getting some kind of crown. But again, you look later in the book of Revelation and you see that we're going to receive these crowns only to take them off again and cast them at the feet of Jesus. So if your faithfulness to God right now is motivated by the prospect of, of material gain, of, of unrighteous wealth, then you've completely missed the point. And you're likely going to miss heaven if you don't repent of that greed and trust in Christ as your true and greatest treasure. So if true riches don't refer to salvation, 
if they don't refer to material wealth. And what are we talking about? Well, in some of his other parables, Jesus says that faithful servants will be given in the life to come more work and therefore more honor when they come to the new creation. His parables teach that there will be a distribution of heavenly authority and responsibility based on a Christian's earthly faithfulness. But it's still not exactly clear what that's going to look like. But whatever these true riches will be, whatever they're going to look like, the one thing for sure is that they will be substantial. They will be eternal and soul-satisfying because they're always put in contrast in the Scriptures to earthly treasures which are described as corruptible and fleeting. And so whatever we're going to get, whatever it's going to be, will truly satisfy our souls. John Piper describes these true riches like this, quote, they are the pleasures of the age to come when we enjoy unbroken fellowship with Jesus. So he's equating these true riches with the pleasures of the age to come in our fellowship, our communion with Christ. And I like how that understanding of these heavenly treasures, it doesn't detract but rather it is derived from the true treasure of heaven, namely the Lord Jesus himself. So whatever these true riches are, they'll somehow increase our joy and experience of communion with Christ in proportion to how faithful we are in storing them up there right now. The bottom line is you shouldn't feel bad about spending and saving your money provided that you are ultimately spending it and saving it in the right place and not the wrong place, in heaven and not just on earth. Spend your money wisely and steward your life faithfully so that when you arrive in glory, the people who will be benefited by it will be there to welcome you with open arms. And again, it's not just the right thing to do It's the smart thing to do, the shrewd thing to do. Jesus concludes this section in verse 13 by reminding us that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Did you notice he didn't say you shouldn't serve God and money? He says you can't. You can't serve God in money, even if you tried. You can't do it. You can serve two employers. You can have two jobs. But it's entirely different when it comes to masters. You can only have one. Your service and allegiance to a master is all-encompassing. So there's no way you can serve two at the same time. That's why Jesus says you can't do it. You can't serve God and money you're going to end up using one as a tool to serve the other. I think there are a lot of people who try to use God to serve their true master, which is money. They worship God, they serve him, they give to his church with the hope that he is going to bless them in return with greater health, wealth, and prosperity. But the Lord sees right through that false devotion. The Lord is is no tool 
And, and, and he knows when we are treating him like one. Money is supposed to be the tool. Money was never meant to be a master. It was meant always to be a servant. Our true master in heaven gave us money as a tool for us to wield in service of heavenly aims and heavenly joys. So friends, between God and money, you just got to ask yourself, who is my master and who is my tool? I want to encourage you, for those of you who aren't in a habit of regularly giving to the Lord and to his church, I want to encourage you this day to make a change, to make a start, to form a new habit of giving a regular offering to the church. And, and don't do it because a preacher is telling you to do that. Do it so that you can demonstrate to yourself, to others, to the principalities of this world, and especially to God, that God is your master. Money is just the tool that you use to serve your Lord. It's what you use to invest in your forever future that you plan to enjoy with him and with his people forever. Oh God, thank you for this word. Thank you for speaking directly to our lives, to our pocketbooks, convicting us on what we are doing with the resources that you have given us. Forgive us, oh Father, for not being shrewd enough, for not thinking long enough that we're only focused on just a few decades ahead and not thinking about our forever future. Help us to reorient our mindset and our perspective in the way that we steward the people and the things and the money that you have given us in this life. Oh Lord, we want you to be glorified and we want all to know that you are the only master. You are the only God. And when we arrive in glory, we look forward to seeing all those faces of those eternal friends. But most of all, we look forward to seeing the face of your son, Jesus, our Savior, the one who was rich but became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich in God. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.